Good morning, Patty. Is your audio activated? I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Okay. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. I, I have a hard time knowing what day it is. I know it's uh, it's a challenge every day when uh, we wake up as well, trying to remember. I remind myself to look at the date on my phone <laughs> that I can remember what day of the week it is. Uh, I have to change the date on the chart that we do our dog's medications and feedings. So yeah. that's how I figure out what the date is. But I still have a hard time with what day of the week we're on. Very good. Uh, for those of those that will be logging on today, I have the distinct pleasure and honor of interviewing the Lane County District Attorney, Patty Perlow. Uh, my name is Mark Molina. I'm the CEO of Molina Business, uh, Molina Leadership and Business Development Solutions. And I want to thank you, first of all, for your willingness to meet. I know you're very busy right now. Uh, how are you doing? Great. The office is, uh, we have, I have great people who have helped uh, put plans in place on how to keep people who are working here safe. Uh, uh, one of my team leaders initiated uh, how to make remote court appearances work for the court and for us and the defense attorneys. And so uh, we are forging ahead with the, uh, they're just the in custody cases, but uh, things are moving. Very good. Now, you're in the midst of a re-election campaign. Uh, you're, you're, um, again, we've spoken before. You, your leadership is at another crucial phase, just like when you were appointed. You were appointed in 2009, post housing market crash. And here we are, here we find, you find yourself in another contested race in what is currently a global pandemic. And I would like to, just for you to discuss a little bit, now last time you lost a third of your staff in 2012, post economic uh, crisis locally, you had to triage um, many of your cases. What are some of the coincidences from that critical time in our community? What are some of the decisions making that are similar and new things that you're learning? Well, that was a financial circumstance for the county as a whole. And so when a third of the staff had to go in 2012, we were making decisions about, I don't know how much detail you want, but at that time it was uh, how to leverage the most money with what we had available and so some senior staff was let go in order to keep the doors open and prosecute as many cases as we could. We still uh, reduced the numbers by about 1,500 felonies a year at that time. And so that was, that was strictly economic uh, decision-making and it wasn't great public safety. It was uh, just triage as you described it. This time around, uh, it's not just an economic situation for the county, it's an economic situation for, uh, for the entire population that we're facing, um, that we have responsibility for uh, protecting. It isn't just 
like the last time around, we lost some staff and how do we deal with it? Now we're dealing with how do we keep our community safe uh, during a time when we, we don't have any control over uh, what's happening. So uh, different decisions are being made on, from every level, uh, including who's gonna go into the jail and who isn't, uh, and making a, a, a public safety assessment on you know, those people uh, who, belong, who may be committing more crimes. Um, people are at home right now, and so uh, domestic violence and child abuse are, uh, well, we know domestic violence is up because those cases are still getting reported. Child abuse isn't getting reported, uh, and everybody's at home, not in school, and so figuring out how to uh, make outreach to the community. It's not, you know, it's not just a uh, criminal prosecution, the cases come in. It is a, we are part of a public safety system. How do we uh, get out to the community, how to keep themselves safe during this time and what we have available to help them. Sure. Um, I, I don't know where else to go with this. It's just that it is so very different in terms of, of how we fit into the whole public safety system. One of the, well, one of the things that is most compelling as a, a citizen of the county, as a citizen of Springfield, as a former soldier, uh, as a community leader, one of the things that has drawn my attention to you as our district attorney is the amount of the leadership responsibilities, the leadership uh, struggles, the leadership burdens that you have carried. This is 20 years now, is that correct? Um, well, for me, I, no, I've been in the office for 30 years. I've been the uh, district attorney for just under five at this point. The appointment was in 2015, and then I was elected in 16. So the, the leadership that I was doing between like 2009 and 2015 was within the office right. uh, as, as the chief deputy managing uh, staff and, and budget. Since 2015, I've taken the responsibilities on as part of the whole public safety system and part of our whole community, not just managing the office. And uh, it, the people of Lane County should be gratified to know that you have great leaders here and great people who are working together really well to uh, achieve public safety. So you were the chief deputy, um, chief deputy managing the office and we're looking at the time that you started uh, short time after law school. You were a young lady. Short time after law school, here we are, These this uh, time later, this journey of years later, this professional development, this professional training, you're, you've gone from learning to be an attorney to working in a court system to managing other uh, district attorney, deputy district attorneys, answering to the district attorney themselves, to then uh, leading your the underlings, so to speak, of the employees of the district attorney's office post-economic crash housing market here in Springfield, you go through a contested appointment, you have a contested a re-election process, and I'm looking at your timeline, your professional timeline, and what I see is this amazing spectrum 
of leadership development and how you continue have continued to develop how you continue to grow have you how you have continued to have to learn in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances and you're still thriving the lane county district attorney's office is still uh, growing you had to make some hard decisions and that well that's what leadership does patty a lot of businesses are not going to come out of this a lot of people are not going to whose lives are going to be forever altered and you face this economic crisis you had to make hard, hard, hard decisions, and you made them. And you helped the uh, Lane County District Attorney's Office uh, meet their mission, meet their goals, serve the people. And I'm reading from my notes here from the last time we spoke. You were able to find grant money to keep, uh, your organization was able to help find uh, grant money to keep the organization viable. And here you are in a contested race, again, for your position. And you have this amazing track record and this amazing development as our district attorney, as a leader, a leader in our community. And I, I wanted just to say that because it is, it is quite impressive. Uh, well, thank for, you for that. And so I think it's important. You have you have a lot of you have this this message, this professional message, this personal message, this life message to the voters of the county as to why uh, you're still in the position that you are and why we should believe in you and I, I'm, i've just been really impressed that here we are in a pandemic and you're still managing those uh the court systems the adjustments to the court systems the video now uh, what did you call that how, just how the people are in custody now you're managing video uh court cases and I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm feeling the stress. I apologize if I'm rambling a little bit because now my family's feeling the stress of this pandemic. And I'm listening to you describe all the adjustments that you're going through. And it, it makes me think of your stress, uh, potentially the stress of the deputy district attorneys, the community as a whole. And so we need experienced leadership running our district attorney's office. How are your deputy district attorneys doing? How are they feeling? How are you, uh, as a leader, helping them manage in the midst of this, uh, all these crazy changes we're dealing with? So that's a lot, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, um, before we really had the shelter in place, I had already uh, made a determination that only half of the staff was going to be coming into the office at any given time and managed to get an agreement with AFSCME because the clerical staff and victim services are all uh, union represented that we would be uh, able under these particular difficult circumstances to uh, change uh, terms outside of, of the contracts and all. And AFSCME was great about working with us with that. Uh, the lawyers all have laptops and can uh, be remote uh, because we have a requirement that initial uh, charging documents have to be filed physically in the court with an original signature, there are always lawyers in the office for reviewing the incoming cases that are in custody, uh, making the charging decisions, and uh, the remote lawyers can make charging decisions, but obviously they uh, are having to have somebody else sign the documents and physically file them. Uh, we're hoping that this will cause the court to come into the 21st century and allow e-filing for that because it's not safe for the court staff either for us to be taking uh, paper down to them. Uh, so 
we are managing by having uh, really good people working here who are keeping the work flowing. Uh, all of the out of custody cases are postponed until after June, but we can't wait until June to start processing them or it will be a tremendous backlog. So all of that work is continuing to flow while we're waiting for uh, the court to reopen for, for all cases. And I know that justice is really uh, being delayed for a lot of uh, people during this time because uh, you know so many people are being released from custody and these cases are being put off until at least after the 1st of June. So we wanna make sure that as soon as we are able, we are processing that work again and um, getting victims or restitution that they're owed and the services that they deserve and to ensure that the people who have been uh, charged with crimes can get their cases heard in a reasonable amount of time. So that's an interest, another interesting component of what's required of you as our district attorney is you're, you have employees that are also unionized. So that, that's another, that's another uh, key component of what skills are required. Now our district, our DA's office has several departments. It's not just um, overseeing cases, criminal cases. You have medical investigations. You have criminal, family, juvenile, and victim services. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about how that is composed and how you manage all of those? All right, so criminal prosecution is what everybody is familiar with if you've watched law and order, you know, the police investigate the crime and the district attorneys prosecute the offenders. But we also have a family law division that uh, collects child support for Lane County kids, about $20 million a year. Uh, victim services, in Oregon victims have constitutional rights. And so my office is tasked with making sure those rights are enforced. So victim services make sure that uh, the Victims of crime uh, are notified of when proceedings are going to happen, are allowed to have uh, meaningful participation in, in, the, in the process, and keep them, keep them informed and, and sit with them through uh, proceedings. Uh, the death investigations uh, is a, uh, par, a function for the state medical examiner. We are really fortunate in Lane County that the medical examiners, the state medical examiner has uh, positioned a, a forensic pathologist, a doctor who does autopsies and death investigations right here in Lane County. And so my office uh, pays for rent at the hospital at Riverbend to use their morgue. And uh, I provide uh, round the clock investigators to help determine cause and manner of death. So three full-time staff to do that, and then a host of part-time people who, because you can't manage 24 hours a day, seven days a week with three people, to help take some of the calls at night, weekends and all, uh, and their nurses, EMTs, people who are medically trained. You said the three full-time have investigators on hand and they manage 12 to 1300 uh, per, cases per year, or is that per month, I don't remember? So we have, uh, we have take jurisdiction, meaning uh, my office looks into somewhere over a thousand, between a thousand and 1300 cases a year uh, of deaths in Lane County. 
and it's uh, unattended or unexplained deaths. So if somebody dies at home and uh, they were under the care of a doctor and it's pretty obvious uh, the medications that they were taking and all, that uh, would not require an autopsy. But the, the investigators from my office would still write a report about what happened. Um, uh, if it was unexplained or unattended, then they would actually do an investigation of it and uh, write a report. And it still doesn't mean that there might necessarily be an autopsy because uh, the one doctor couldn't physically autopsy over a thousand people a year, but uh, it does require an actual investigation, talking to their medical providers and their family to try to determine what the cause and manner of death was. That department also has um, nurses and EMTs. What's the, the count on that? How many work for the county or, or are volunteers? Well, they are part-time uh, employees of the county. And at any given time, we generally have about seven of them. Some of them work more than others because of schedule flexibility. Uh, some of them may only you know, pick up a shift now and then. Um, but it's, it's great. They have uh, constant training and communication, go over their cases with the, the paid full-time staff so that we can make sure that it's a quality investigation that's happening for every family. Very good. Now, the last time we discussed within the family law division of the district attorney's office or department, you have four attorneys and they bring in approximately 20 million in child support on an annual basis, is that correct? Yes, yes. And so how many cases does your office uh, manage per year in that area of family law? That is a really difficult number to assess because when a, a child support case is opened, it's opened until the uh, child reaches uh, potentially age 25. Okay. So each year you get new cases and these other cases are still open. They aren't all necessarily active. If somebody is making payments, then my office doesn't do any work on it. It's when people fail to pay or are in arrears uh, that my office takes action. And so it's really, it's really difficult to give you a, a number on that. We do grant reporting. Uh, and the office gets incentives for doing good work. Uh, and, and so that's how I know the number is about $20 million, but I can't tell you how many individual cases that involves. And these incentives come from where? I'm sorry? These incentives come from where? The federal government uh, runs through the state of Oregon uh, to uh, help fund the office, which is why we can have four lawyers working on this um, because they do such good work that we continue to be funded for it. Very good. Now, <clears throat> how do you go about, as a leader, what do you look for in those that would apply for service as a deputy district attorney? Well, I think I told you this before. What I'm looking for is good judgment. Yes. Because um, we can teach somebody how to read a police report, how to physically file charges. We can even teach them the components of trying a case in front of a jury, but we can't teach judgment. And so uh, 
the interview process involves asking questions that would help um, give us an indication of of the person's perceptions and uh, you know just how they um, might look at a case or or uh, you know it's a it's a lengthy process and they go through a lot of vetting with pretty much the majority of the lawyers in the office to make sure that they would be a good fit here as well as uh, not bringing up any red flags while they're going through the, the process of, of interviewing and um, we're making a determination of whether to make a job offer. And I think I told you we have the prosecution clinic from the University of Oregon Law School. And so a number of the uh, people I hire as deputy DAs come through that program. So we have a year to assess them and the work that they do. Uh, some of them also come from uh, clerking for judges. I was a judicial clerk. Mm -hmm. And so the staff has uh, an opportunity to, to see interactions uh, with the court and you know, just, uh, you know, you get, a, you get a sense of whether somebody would truly be interested in this work or if they're just looking for a job. Is it traditional or historical that the majority of deputy uh, district attorneys come, they're fresh, maybe fresh out of law school or an internship, or would other attorneys from different areas want to come and apply to be a district deputy attorney that may, may be moving in that might be a little older? So we have done some lateral hires from other DA's offices. Uh, I have had a couple of people want to uh, apply, who have applied here, want to come in and work uh, with interesting backgrounds. The problem is they're coming from uh, bigger salaries uh, in the work that they're doing and coming into public service, I can't match those salaries. And so that's where you find out if somebody's really interested in the work or if um, they're looking for you know, something else. How much uh, latitude are you given as our district attorney over the budget? Um, I am given, well, the personnel costs are the bulk of the budget. And so the latitude I'm given is uh, if I have a vacancy, I can hold that vacancy open for a period of time if we have extraordinary expenses in another area. For example, if we're um, trying cases that have really expensive expert witnesses, I might hold a vacancy open in order to um, cover the costs that we weren't expecting in that way. Um, but, you know, government budgeting is pretty specific. <laughs> Right. So, um, yeah, my latitude is in if I have a, an extraordinary expense, I have to find the money or go back to the board and tell them why I couldn't uh, make my budget. And what is the budget for the Lane County District Attorney's Office? About $11 million and about $3 million of that is grant funding and $8 million is uh, general fund. And you answer directly as our district attorney to the Lane County Board of Commissioners, is that correct? I, I am not employed by the Board of Commissioners. I am, I am elected by the people of Lane County, and so I answer to them. Um, the board approves my budget, okay. and the county employs my uh, staff, but I, I don't actually work for the Board of Commissioners. 
Well, thank you for sharing that because I, I, you know, there's so much for us as citizens to learn about how our government is made up. And I think sometimes we can assume, which I did just then when you mentioned the budget, uh, I guess I really presented the question wrong. Your budget is approved by the Lane County Board of Commissioners. Correct. That's, that's your oversight. There, there is a budget committee that meets. Yes. It's actually a really lengthy process. I submit a request for a budget. I, that process starts in January and then the, the budget's generally approved for the whole county by June. And so we go through a process of presenting what the need is and why and where any increases in expenditures are going or where any increases in revenue are coming in. We, we do uh, get uh, money from the state of Oregon for providing discovery in criminal cases. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes, you know, there are increases in revenue. And so I have to adjust for that with the, the board as well. So you, you come out, you, uh, you're appointed in 2015, you're managing the office prior to that. In regards to the $11 million budget in your professional development uh, to where you are now as our district attorney, what was that like for you to learn to manage that type of revenue, reading P&Ls, uh, things of that nature? So I have to admit that I went to law school because numbers weren't my very favorite thing. Uh, and so that was uh, a stark learning process for me is uh, managing the money that's coming to the department and watching the expenditures. And as chief deputy, I started uh, reviewing the bills that we were receiving each week and figuring out where that fit in, working with the accountant that we have here in the office to uh, explain the budgeting process to me. It, and, and so I actually had to start from the beginning learning how to do that. Um, and now I'm pretty proficient at it. Uh, uh, I've been on a, a few boards where uh, there have been some money issues. And so it's really important to have a thorough understanding of how to look at um, the, the uh, cash flow and, uh, and budgeting. I think it's important that I think that's important that that's uh, acknowledged because it's part of the the leadership development process and understanding that we're not all good at everything and that we do have learning curves. Uh, leadership requires learning curves, and and I thank you for saying that, sharing your struggle and that process for you. And so I, I just think it's really important that who that in your office people understand that your role is is very broad, and it's not just criminal cases. It's not just people going to court. You have all this administrative management of of a budget, of personnel, of cases, of employees that are unionized, uh, the expectation of the voters answering for the budget to the board uh, county. Lane County Board of Commissioners. And so it's a very comprehensive picture that speaking with you, even I didn't know or didn't understand. So it's, it's significant. Yeah, it is a, it is a managing a medium sized law firm and being accountable to the public. Uh, nobody really enjoys coming to court for anything. 
uh, other than adoptions. Adoptions are happy, but uh, yeah, so trying to uh, weigh the fact that nobody is ever going to be completely satisfied with the outcomes of what happens in the criminal process. Uh, it is important to have really good management of the office and, uh, and partnerships in the community to try to improve uh, public safety for everybody here. It really, it's been a, a great journey for me and um, the relationships I've developed through this have, are just, uh, you, you can't put a price or a measurement on, on the value of those, but the work that's getting done here because of those relationships is terrific. Very good. Could you explain, we discussed this the last time, for those of us that don't understand the grand jury process, what does that look like for your office to manage? So I think I told you, uh, initially grand jury was created to have more transparency in criminal cases. Uh, it was the cases initiated in a courtroom and so it, it was deemed that it would be better to have citizens coming in and making the charging decision. So that's how grand jury was created. It's a process where um, the, the uh, seven grand jurors, uh, a witness, and a deputy district attorney, unless there's a court order otherwise, those are the only people in the room. And the jury uh, listens to the evidence to make, to make a decision of, of what charges will be filed based upon uh, the evidence that's presented. We uh, currently, because of uh, COVID, have our grand jurors in a courtroom sitting more than six feet apart, and the witnesses are appearing by video, well, by computer means, it's not video recording, it's live, uh, with the deputy district attorney also uh, remote. Uh, law enforcement is all just from their agencies coming into grand jury through remote means. Uh, otherwise, the witnesses are coming to the office if they don't have the ability to uh, remote in and uh, sitting in a separate room so that we can keep everybody safe. Uh, then right, the jurors hear the evidence and make a determination of what charges uh, there's sufficient evidence for, and that's what gets filed with the court. We now are recording grand jury, that was new. Um, and so uh, we have uh, equipment in the courtroom that, or well, now in the courtroom because that's what we're using for the grand jury. And a grand juror is responsible for remembering to start and stop the recording. Now, how often is the grand jury utilized? Is it only for particular kinds of cases, or how how consistent of this is is this part of your process? So uh, for felony cases, it requires either a preliminary hearing or a grand jury proceeding unless the defendant agrees to just proceed on the initial charging instrument. And that happens a lot in Lane County that, uh, that defendants say you don't need to take the case to grand jury because generally the case gets better for us when we've brought witnesses in and asked them questions um, and it might end up that more charges are filed or, or more significant charges are filed. So the defendants oftentimes waive that right and proceed on the charging instrument. Right now, we're not having very many grand juries at all because it's only for the in-custody cases that the court is continuing to process. Normally, the grand jury, uh, we have two grand jury panels. 
the one downtown that hears all the general felonies um, would meet four days a week uh, of varying hours, maybe three and a half days a week. Uh, the, the second panel is uh, the child abuse uh, grand jury, and they hear all the cases of, of child abuse, um, you know, physical and sexual abuse. And that grand jury is held over at the Child Abuse Intervention Center called Kids First, so that the kids can come into a safe place and not into this terrible courthouse. Okay. We've talked a lot about the, your, the construction of your office and the cases. I'd like to change course a little bit because on our conversation on the last time, I really appreciated your philosophy of what consider what do you consider success? And you consider getting people out of the system as success. And that was honestly, Patty, that was the last thing I expected to hear from a district attorney. Because I guess we watched, what do we know about the law but what we see on television? People win a case, good job, maybe a high five, a hug or something like that. And it's so we're conditioned to think that that's what success is in the court system. But that is not your intention whatsoever as our district attorney. And I'd like to talk a little bit about, for you to talk a little bit about what you consider success and some of the implementation processes you've put into place uh, to help those that are currently engaged in the the, the justice system, so to speak. So I don't want to give the misimpression that success can't be a criminal prosecution. There are some people who do terrible things in our community and uh, absolutely need to be held accountable for those uh, acts of theirs, um, you know, violent rapes, murders, and all of that. Those people are going to prison still. Uh, and then our hope is after they've served their time and they come back to the community that our reentry programs will engage them and give them some opportunities to to uh, change their course of behavior but when we're talking about the programs that we have available here to get people out of the criminal justice system and keep them out i would say our treatment courts are number one and that is uh it's really difficult uh, these people are all high risk uh, and now we're seeing mainly, well, methamphetamine and, and opioids. It's hard to get people to engage in treatment. It's hard to get them to continue to come back to the program. Mm -hmm. But those people who successfully complete the program, we don't see again. It's a minimum of a year. It's super hard work, but it's effective. And the same with mental health court. Mental health court was one of the goals I had uh, when I took office, that we needed another way to address people with mental health issues. Well, <laughs> the first year we couldn't get people to even come back to court. Uh, and so we expanded the programming that was available. It turned out a lot of people with mental health issues weren't coming back to court because they were unhoused and they were unable to keep track of basic daily living, let alone you need to be at court on Tuesday afternoon at 2.30. So getting uh, uh, programmed housing and all was essential in making that program work. And now we have actually had a number of graduations this year. It's been terrific. Um, and those are people who 
have a support system in place at the conclusion and are out of the criminal justice system. We have a, a prison diversion program for repeat property offenders that provides uh, intense supervision, mentoring programs, uh, housing to meet the needs, to give them uh, an opportunity to uh, gain some skills, get a job. You know, all of these things are designed to give people who want out of the system a way to do it. And those are my, those are my greatest successes. When somebody is uh, overcoming their own challenges themselves and um, going forward, getting their kids back, getting their families back together, uh, working or going to school, that's a success. I appreciate you making that distinction um, that though there are those people that must be properly, diligently, legally prosecuted for terrible, terrible crimes, they must give an account of that and give account of those crimes. But also just the work that your department, uh, your Glen County District Attorney's Office is doing in mental health, in drug court. Can we talk a little bit about Veterans Court? Veterans Court, the people who are in Veterans Court are the easiest to get to uh, follow the rules because veterans are rule followers. Mm -hmm. And so 100% show up rate is uh, not a rarity in veterans court. Uh, engaging in the programs, uh, they follow the rules. They might not in the beginning believe they need help or that, uh, that they should be there, but our graduates of the program are housed they have treatment, they have support, and uh, we don't see them again. You know, I served as a mentor in the Veterans Court, and I'd go to the courts on Thursday, and the judge at that time would always celebrate the successes of the veterans. They'd have cake and drink, you know, punch or whatever. And I was amazed at a couple of things. One was how those veterans, once they were back in a measure of a structured environment, they were able to reorient themselves to success. And then many who were just struggling with uh, TBI or traumatic brain injury or some form of PTSD, that was really at the root of what the, was creating their hardships. And I remember we had, we, the mentors would walk some of them across the street to get paperwork filled out or to make copies or and how much they were struggling to do that. And I just wanted to say for the record that your philosophy of helping these that are in this portion of the system that really do want to get out, if they can just get a hand up instead of a hand out, so to speak, your, the district attorney's office under your leadership is doing a tremendous job in this area. Yes, I, the treatment courts, um, I wish we could expand them. Uh, we need sufficient funding to do that. And, you know, everybody's fighting for the same uh, pot of money. And, and most of that money is coming from the state. So hopefully we'll be able to continue and expand these programs because they really do work. Mm -hmm. So let's, uh, I want to talk a little bit about you so people know you a little bit better. You are an Oregonian. You were raised in Hillsboro when it was a lot smaller than it is now. And you uh, went to your undergraduate at the University of Oregon and as well as a graduate of the University of Oregon Law School. What was your undergraduate in again? I forget. 
It was in political science. That's it didn't right. require any math. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's me in math. With the homeschooling issues, I'm having to help my daughter with school, and she's seven, and I'm like, math still hates me. So uh, I don't. My daughter's a math genius, and I don't. She must have gotten that from my husband's side of the family because it did not come from me. So you you went straight into law school post uh, undergraduate, though, correct? No, I worked for a year. I graduated. Uh, from got my undergraduate degree and then uh, went to work in Portland uh, for um, maybe was two months three months tops and then I went back I had done an internship at the legislature and I went back and worked uh, uh, there until I entered law school in the summer of 1986 now, did you know right away post undergraduate uh, completion that you wanted to go to law school, or when did that? When did you have that revelation? Well, as my dad was a lawyer, mm, okay, and my my brother is a lawyer, and so that really was something I was familiar with, but I wasn't sure that's what I wanted to do, and so that's why after graduation, I took that year. To, to reflect on where I was going and what I wanted to do, and then ended up applying and, and going back to school. And you graduated law school, you're officially a double duck. Yes. And so talk to us a little bit about your, uh, um, your clerkship. So at, I think it was in May of uh, my third year of law school, you meet with the judges and uh, interview for a clerkship. And I was selected by uh, Judge Spencer. He was a senior judge on the bench and not the senior judge, that was Judge Allen. He was a senior judge on the bench. And so uh, he was retiring in the fall. And so I started working for him in August of 1989. And then in October, he retired. And so Kip Leonard was a district court judge. We had two courts back then, district court for misdemeanors and circuit court for felonies. And so uh, Judge Leonard got the appointment to the circuit court position and I was clerking for him at, for, gosh, it must have been late October until in December, a woman from the uh, DA's office asked if I'd be interested in working here. And so my clerkship, I was the very first clerk ever released early from the commitment because uh, Judge Leonard hadn't been the person who hired me mm -hmm. and uh, he let me go. And so in Jan January 31, 1990, here I was. How quick was your progression from being a deputy district attorney to the point that you were chief deputy? Well, I started in January of 1990, January 31, and I became chief deputy when Alex Gardner was elected DA on January 1 of 2009. So it was about 20 years um, before I was uh, pretty close to 20 years before I made it to chief deputy. Um, during that time, the progression was I was on the misdemeanor team uh, initially, and then went to a general felony team, and then uh, 
spent 1994 through eight on major crimes team. 1998 to 2001, I was the lawyer for the uh, interagency narcotics enforcement team, the drug team. And then after that stint, I went back to a felony team. And then I became a trial team leader in 2004. So, and so I was a supervisor, uh, a trial team leader until I became chief deputy in 2009. Very good. And in your progression and in your leadership development, just out of curiosity, does a district attorney's office, how do they prepare someone like you as they're promoting you and progressing you forward? So it's very different now than when I started. When I started, I came into the office and somebody took a big stack of files and dropped them on my desk and said, here you go. And I was in trial two weeks after I started, well, yeah, two weeks after I started, my first trial was February 14th of 1990. Um, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. We actually uh, spend more time going over how to review a case uh, and how to spot pitfalls and things. Uh, I went to what we fondly call baby DA school in the fall. Um, and that was just sort of a fluke of the timing of my hiring. We do a lot of hiring of people who pass the bar uh, and they get their notice in September and then they go to baby DA school in early October. Okay. So that's why the, the timing is set up that way. Uh, and so you go to a week long course about prosecution. Because we have the prosecution clinic for the U of O here, we have people who are teachers already working in the office to help um, mentor the new lawyers. Uh, the trial team leaders uh, work with each other to make sure that they're uh, sharing information so that the new lawyers are getting a consistent message on what expectations are. And it used to be that the misdemeanor, when I was on the misdemeanor team, we supervised ourselves. Uh, I, you know, I was a supervisor of the team after having worked there for less than a year. <laughs> We don't do that anymore. Now we have senior lawyers uh, supervising and managing and um, making sure that everything is consistent and that uh, people get the support they need to be uh, really good trial lawyers. I think it's important to recognize that your leadership development came when there was not a lot of, if, if support is the correct word or not, but there wasn't processes in place that there are now. And I'm listening to you speak and being a former soldier, I'm thinking she really did learn basically by baptism under fire, so to speak. You were put into a position, you excelled through hard work, I'm sure. And they just said, here you go. And you did it. Right. And but I have to say, too, that, you know, that was when we had district court. We don't have that anymore. So that we had that training ground that we don't have. And when I was on the misdemeanor team, it was it was just, it was really fun. I mean, there was this team of people with a dedicated, you know, a, a caseload that was huge. Mm -hmm. And the court would set trials, you know, like five, one lawyer might have five set on a given day. You had to have them all prepared to go. And uh, we would be handing off files if somebody had a trial scheduled and it didn't go, they might have been picking up somebody else's trial that day. It was just a totally different environment that what, than what young people here are working in. They don't have that training ground of district court anymore. 
So um, yeah, it, it's very different, but in the, by the same token, we couldn't do that today. So on the job for sure then? Yes. Very good. Now before Alex Gardner was Doug Harkelroad, is that how you yes. say it? And then was Alex. I served with Alex on the KMTR advisory board. If I may, I'd like to know what it was like for you. I would only assume respectfully that it can have been intimidating or challenging to be uh, become a woman district attorney behind what were two very capable, powerful men. And you, you're asked to go through the appointment process. You're, they, someone believed in you. You submit your application. You're appointed by the governor. Is that correct? Yes. You went through, and that was a contested appointment. You had an opponent, or if that's the correct word. And then you had a contested race a year later. Is that correct? Right. The May 2016 primary. May 2000. I remember in 2009 when you got appointed at that time frame. And um, what, what was, how did you feel coming into, I mean, you had this amazing development. There's no question, no question. What was it like for you post-appointment to come into this leadership position, post-economic uh, crash, looking at all of these really hard decisions? What was that like for you? You were, uh, here you are, this leader of this amazing responsibility. How did you bear up under that? What was some? What were some of your thought processes? Well, I just say, the the process of a contested appointment and a contested election makes you sit down and focus on why you want the job, why you should have the job, and what you're going to do in the job. And the first thing that I wanted to do was stop saying we can't do this because because we don't have enough resources. And I wanted the message to be, what can we do with what we have? And so that, that first spiral was the beginning of what this office has become now. And in fact, what the county has become is, uh, okay, what can we do with what we have and how are we gonna get there? Your what did you so that, that was important what, what have you learned about yourself as a leader post-contested appointment post-contested race elected by the voters obviously people believe in you because you have held your position maintained your position with tremendous support what have you learned about yourself as a leader through those processes uh i learned that you uh, are capable of more than you think you are and that you surround yourself with people who are smarter than you are <laughs> to give you good advice and let let them speak honestly to you about whether what you want to do is smart or not smart and uh, be a good listener and so what I learned in developing myself into the position of district attorney is there's not really any place for ego uh, and be a good listener and uh, and surround yourself with people who are super smart and then they want to do the right thing with you, not for you, but with you. And I think that's the leader that I wanted to be. 
Do you find yourself in another contested race right now? Uh, if reelected, that's another four-year term, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. You're gonna have the year of the voter in this video. Um, what would you like to say to those that will be voting in this election? What is your message to them? The message is that experience really matters in this position uh, and honesty and integrity matter. And uh, beyond that, um, this is a great community and I've lived here my entire adult life um, and in the state my whole life. And so my honor is to serve the public here. And that's why I continue to work in this office and why I put myself out there. Uh, if you've seen any of the things that have been uh, in the paper recently, um, that, uh, you know, it's hard to, to run for public office and put yourself out there. But uh, it's important work and I am wanting to continue the work that I've started here. So yes, we are very transparent. We honor all public records requests. Um, <laughs> if uh, I am elected, I will serve all four years as long as I'm not hit by a bus or we have a pandemic that takes me out. Um, I don't have a retirement home in Arizona. I don't have any interest in moving to Arizona. So <laughs> those, those are some of the things I would like the people watching to know. I appreciate uh, the expression that it, you are vulnerable. You do put yourself out there. I think that um, it's important for people to understand that it, it's, re it's really hard to be under constant scrutiny at all times. And once you have a record, it's, it's easy for people to cast stones at a record. And so it takes a lot of courage. And I just wanted to say that I appreciate your courage. I appreciate your willingness to allow me to interview. I appreciate your candor and all of the and the questions and how you've answered yourself. I, I appreciate the way you've explained your philosophy and your thoughtfulness. Uh, you've discussed uh, how your development process, what that is like. I think you're a great leader. I just want to say that as one community leader to another. Uh, being a former soldier, I think of your development and. And, and during the first Persian Gulf War in the early 90s, I was at Fort, uh, Fort Sam Houston and they activated 50,000 soldiers from 5th Army and 20,000 soldiers came through the, my detachment to be trained or, or brought back on full-time military status. So 25 years old, I'm not only helping my unit mobilize a nation for war, but helping train the 20,000 soldiers that came through. And so I listen to your development and I'm thinking uh, what, how significant and how irreplaceable that kind of uh, historical perspective is to what you're doing now. And so I wanted to thank you. I wanted to thank you for being willing to stay in this process, making yourself available to the voters, to uh, the, the employees of the district attorney office, as well as all the leaders that have placed their faith and confidence in you. Well, thank you very much for that. I appreciate your kind words. I appreciate your leadership. And uh, I love to talk to people. And so when you gave me this opportunity, of course I would take that. Just like if anybody in the community wanted to have a cup, well, we can't have coffee now, but have a conversation, I would love to do it. 
If anyone, Patty, wanted to contact you and your campaign team, how would they do that? Uh, the easiest way is to go through the Facebook page, mm -hmm. uh, Patty, District Attorney Patty Perlow. I have a website, daperlow.org, that has a lot of uh, information about me and the, and the campaign as well. Very good. And how is your, your, uh, your family holding up with all of this? Um, well, my children are adults living on their own, uh, and so they are fortunately still employed. I recognize that that is not the case for many people in our community, um, and so they are still uh, able to uh, pay their bills and, and go to work. Um, and my husband and I are very fortunate that we are able to still go to work and be employed. Um, and so my family is, uh, I'm very grateful that my family is in the position that we are in right now. Very good. My, my gratitude to your husband uh, for uh, supporting you and allowing you to grow into who you are. And uh, that's a significant example of the respect that you have for one another. And that's good to see. Yes, we've been together a very, very long time. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's even better. <laughs> All right, well, Patty, I thank you for your time today. And thank you for such a gen genuine interview. It's very sincere, and we're gonna get this posted a little bit later today. And you can, um, it'll be on the Molina Leadership uh, Business Development Solutions page. And you can, if you wanna copy that to your website or to your page, uh, you're more than welcome to do that. Thanks, and like I said, good editing is everything. Yes, ma'am, we're, <laughs> we're gonna look at it, okay? Thank you. So Thank much. you. Yes, ma'am. Have a good day. You too. Bye bye. Okay, now I need